Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Let's jump right in this morning. I want to tell you about a guy. His name is Robert Tashi Kuroda. He was a second-generation Japanese-American. He was born in November 8th, 1922 in Hawaii. And after the bombings in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, things were a little tense if you were a Japanese-American. Uh, there was a lot of prejudice, a lot of racism that happened. Um, and he was, he was a part of that. People definitely had prejudice against him. There was actually, you know, different internment camps that some Japanese Americans kind of got relocated to during that time. And even though they were going through all this different prejudice, a lot of them, all they wanted to do was serve. That's all they wanted to do. They wanted to serve their country. They wanted to go to war to, to protect and serve the, the country that they loved. And Robert was one of those people. And he enlisted in the army in March of 1943. After basic training, he went to France and uh, was in quite a few battles. And this is the citation from his uh, Medal of Honor. For conspicuous gallantry and, and intrepidity at risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, Staff Sergeant Robert Tashi Kuroda distinguished himself by extraordinary heroism in action. On the 20th of October, 1944, near Briere, France, leading his men in an advance to destroy snipers and machine gun nests, Staff Sergeant Kuroda encountered heavy fire from enemy soldiers occupying a heavily wooded slope. Unable to pinpoint the hostile machine gun, he boldly made his way through heavy fire to the crest of the ridge. Once he located the machine gun nest, Staff Sergeant Kuroda advanced to a point within 10 years of the nest and killed three enemy gunners with grenades. He then fired clip after clip of rifle ammunition, killing or wounding at least three of the enemy. As he expended the last of his ammunition, he observed that an American officer had been struck by a burst of fire from a hostile machine gun located on an adjacent hill. Rushing to the officer's assistance, he found that the officer had been killed. Picking up the officer's submachine gun, Staff Sergeant Kuroda advanced through continuous fire toward a second machine gun emplacement and destroyed the position. As he turned the fire up on additional enemy soldiers, he was killed by a sniper. Staff Sergeant Kuroda's courageous actions and indomitable fighting spirit ensured the destruction of enemy resistance in the sector. Staff Sergeant Kuroda's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of military service and reflect great credit on him, his unit, and the United States Army. You know, there's something special about stories of heroism, right? There's something that draws us all in when we, when we hear stories about heroes, when we hear underdog stories. There's something that draws us in, and part of that is the underlying theme of selflessness that's often interwoven with those kinds of stories. You know, think about the movies that we've seen of heroism, of underdog stories, there's often this idea of setting oneself aside 
for a greater goal, a greater purpose. And it's interesting that while we all love a good hero story, while we all love a good story about a real-life Good Samaritan, the real world or the world around us goes on striving for greatness. Right? It goes on looking for greatness in status, accumulation of wealth, beauty, influence, the prestige in the fields that we're in. Well, what does Jesus have to say about our pursuit of greatness? While the world goes on striving for those kinds of things, what does Jesus say about our pursuit of greatness? That's the question that we want to answer this today. So if you want to flip to Mark 9, verses 30 through 37, that's where we're going to be spending our time in Scripture this morning. Mark 9, 30 through 37. And we're going to start right away in verse 30 through 32. This is what it says. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Right, a few weeks ago, we talked about the transfiguration, and we talked about the disciples being unable to cast a demon out of a boy, and then Jesus coming and doing it through prayer. Remember, the, remember those stories? All right, we talked about those just a couple of weeks ago, and then the disciples got ready to travel back to Capernaum, and as they're going to Capernaum, Jesus wants to pull his disciples aside. It says that, that he... he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Right? As, he, as Jesus predicts his death for the second time, he knows that he needs some privacy with his disciples. He needs their full focus. He needs all of their attention because he's getting ready to prepare them for his departure. Right? He knows it's not going to be long and he's not going to be around anymore. He's going to die. He's going to come back from the grave and then he's going to go to heaven, and he's going to leave these disciples on earth to complete the mission that he's started. And he needs time, and he needs their attention to prepare them. And here he is, he's foretelling the death and the resurrection. And he uses this phrase, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. And in the original Greek language, it's what we would have called a, a divine passive uh, so because of the type, of, the, just the grammatical structure, it was a divine passive, which means that God was actively at work in this plan. Even though Jesus was being handed over, right? Not what the disciples would have thought was God's plan. Because of the grammatical structure, there's this underlying idea that God is actively at work here. Jesus is being delivered over. He's being handed over. He's been given up, almost as if God is handing Christ over to humanity for one final time for humanity to have their way with Christ. Right? Jesus came from heaven in his incarnation at his birth, as his first coming to the world, and it's almost as if, if God is giving him over for one last time and delivering him up to man and saying, this is part of my bigger plan. This is part of the bigger scheme that's at work. But the disciples, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. Even though they've been walking with Jesus, even though they've been hearing about this coming kingdom, that something big was about to happen, something good was going to happen, even though they've been seeing Jesus' service in humility and they've heard him predict his death, they still don't get it. And I think there's a few things at work here. One of them is spiritual blindness. 
right? They don't fully comprehend yet. And part of that, I don't think we can entirely blame them, right? We're fortunate. We have 2020, right? Hindsight. We can look back at the story and see what happened and go, but they may be thinking, what are you nuts, Jesus? Everything's going well. This plan is great. Why would you be predicting your death? I think there's a spiritual blindness at play, and I think maybe there's denial at play. Here, this guy, he's their best friend, and he's saying, I'm going to be delivered up into the hands of men, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected. And they're saying, what? I don't, I don't know about this. This doesn't seem right. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I think maybe there's just a bit of denial at play, but for whatever reason, they just they don't get it yet. They don't understand. And right away in the very next bit of Scripture we're going to read here this morning, this is what we see the disciples saying. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And there's a stark contrast between these two passages. On one hand, you've got Jesus predicting his death. He's saying, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to, I'm going to give myself up. I'm not going to fight it. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. I've, I've, it's fine. There's a bigger plan. I'm going to come back. Right? There's a submission there. Jesus is predicting his death. And then you've got the disciples on the other side who are arguing amongst themselves about who they graced. And you've got to imagine, you know, you've got Peter, James, and John. Or, yeah, Peter, James, and John who are saying, hey, we just saw Jesus glorified. We just saw his transfiguration. We just saw this awesome moment. Clearly, we're the chosen ones. We're the best. Then you've got Matthew who's maybe saying, yeah, but I've got all the financial knowledge, right? I was a tax collector. I've got things figured out. You know, worst comes to worst. I can go back to my old job. I can make money. I'm the best. Maybe you've got Judas who's saying, yeah, but I'm a rebel for the cause. Right? I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to go to my death. I'm ready to do whatever it takes. And you've got this arguing and this bickering amongst themselves about who is the greatest. The difference between Jesus and his disciples couldn't be more obvious. They're coming from this, at this from two completely different angles. And for the last few weeks especially, we've seen this theme of humility, this theme, this theme of self-denial interwoven amongst the words of Scripture. We talked about the leaven of the Pharisees. We talked about their hypocrisy, their, their pride in their teachings, their pride in themselves, and the way that they did things to be just a little bit flashy to put themselves above the people. We talked about their desire for national power, to, to restore Israel to its rightful place, to, to be delivered from oppression and gain their authority back. And Jesus condemned them for it. Mark 8, 34 through 35, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever would lose his life for my sake and for the gospel will gain it. He's telling the disciples, set your priorities aside. Give up, be ready to give up your life to follow me. Submit yourself to follow me. And now twice Jesus has predicted his death, and both times he's followed it up with a lesson on discipleship. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our focus this morning is on that teaching in discipleship. But I got to imagine at this point, Jesus has got to be a little irritated at best. <laughs> He's been walking with these guys for years. They've been hearing these messages about humility and service. They've been seeing his example, going to the least and the lost for years. And here they are arguing among, about, amongst themselves about who the greatest is. Right? You just got to imagine Jesus is you know, just a few feet away from them, far enough that they think he can't hear them. And they're arguing amongst themselves about who the greatest is when clearly the greatest is walking in front of them. There's no question about who the greatest is, but here they are. They're arguing anyways. The thing is, Jesus, he doesn't, dis, he doesn't scold the disciples. Or he doesn't squash them down. He takes it as an opportunity to teach. Ever been caught red-handed before doing something you weren't supposed to? I remember when I was a kid, I was probably in second or third grade, I love baseball. I'm in the backyard. I've got the ball on a tee. I'm practicing. Not supposed to be using a real ball or a real bat. But, you know, it's baseball season, so I'm trying to practice to the best of my ability. And sure enough, that ball goes through the back window. My mom comes outside. She's like, what happened? And I just I pointed at my brother, and I said, he did it. <laughs> my brother's four years younger than me. <laughs> He couldn't even pick up that bat at that point, let alone hit the ball hard enough to get it through a window. My mom took that as an opportunity to say, hey, you're lying. <laughs> it's obvious you're lying. This is why we don't lie. Right? You need to put the bat away. You need to put the ball away. You need to go inside and have a timeout. And we're going to talk about this a little bit. Right? It was an opportunity to learn. Right? Those times that you've been caught red-handed, which times did you learn from somebody? Was it the time that somebody like, they kind of turned a cold shoulder and kind of pretended like nothing was happening? Or was it the time when somebody gracefully sat you down and disciplined you and taught you why what you were doing was wrong? And so it's times when we're taught, right? And Jesus takes that very same opportunity with his disciples and he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And after asking what they're talking about, Jesus, he doesn't, you know, whack them upside the back of the head and say, you dummies, <laughs> don't you get it? How are you missing this? No. He simply sits down and teaches his disciples a lesson in discipleship. And what is it that he teaches? He teaches them about humility, self-denial, and servant leadership. Everything about Jesus' time on earth demonstrated those things. Humility, self-denial, and servant leadership. And I think maybe one more reason that the disciples were failing to understand these lessons that Jesus was teaching is because that would have been completely opposed to the world that they lived in. Right? The Romans, the Greeks, 
their perspective on service can be summed up by what Plato had to say, which is this. How can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? That's the world they live in. Right? That's their perspective. How, how can somebody even be happy if they have to serve somebody? How can they feel valued? How can they feel significant? How can they experience joy if they have to serve somebody? They saw service as demeaning, as undignified. But everything that Jesus teaches within it has an element of service. Think about it. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. Right Within those teachings is an element of humility and an element of service. Every act of Christ's service was a manifestation of God's love. All right, in God's economy, greatness is not reserved for the elite and the gifted. Right, in the world, it seems like it is reserved only for the elite and the gifted. But in God's economy, greatness is not reserved for the elite and the gifted. You think about the choosing of the disciples. Jesus had at his fingertips all of the world's people to choose from. And who did he choose? Some fishermen, a tax collector, a criminal, normal, common, everyday people, some of which would have been considered outcasts, the least people who you would want to stay away from. Right? These guys, they had no right. They had no right to be with the Son of God. They had no right to be followers, the greatest teacher of all time. But Jesus chose them Anyways, he saw more there. He saw potential there for greatness. That these guys would carry his message beyond him, beyond his death, and start a movement that would change the world. And to further drive the point home that Jesus is trying to make, he picks up a child, and he sets it on his lap, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right, what does that child represent? When you think about kids, what do they represent? Vulnerability? People, like, people who has to rely on others, right? Now, we've, we've been sick for the last you know, week or so. Henry had to rely on us for a lot of changed diapers and for a lot of cleanup and to feed him and to take care of him, Right? Back then, they would have been considered the least in society. They'd have been considered as people who had nothing to offer. Kids were, were next to worthless until they could provide and help with the family. The only thing that they were really good for at that point would have been carrying on the family name, a part of lineage, someone to give their heritage to. And Jesus chooses that child. He chooses to use a child as an example but it has much greater implications than that, right? He's telling his disciples they need to be ready to serve the least and the lost of society. Every needy segment of society. And even though they don't get it, right? It says right there in verse 31 or 32 that they, they don't understand his sayings. They're, they're not getting it yet. That carries on into these next verses. They're not getting it. But in James, right, after Jesus has died, after he's given an example, after he's been re resurrected, 
James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's just one great example. The apostles, right? Something clicked. It's too cold. I can't snap. (laughs) It's going to be warmer next week. The boilers are not on this week. They will be on and ready to go next week. So if it's a little chilly, we apologize. Uh, Fall snuck up on us, or early winter, as Mac would call it. (laughs) The apostles, they got it. They figured it out. After he is gone, they figured it out. Jesus is the greatest example. He's the greatest example we could have of humility and servanthood. In his incarnation, right, he gave up his place, his seat in heaven to come down to be born as a child, to be born as the least in the lost, to be as the worst in society. He lived among disciples, right, common people, fishermen. He could have been with kings. You see, the miracles that were done, people wanted to raise him up as a leader, and he kept saying no. the public nature of his, his trial and his beatings, the fact that he was forced to carry the, his own cross to where he would die, right? The very instrument of his death, he had to carry it to where he would experience a very shameful, very public death. And then after conquering death, he returned to earth with grace for those disciples whom most of had abandoned him. And his lowest moment, as he hung there on the cross, it doesn't say he was surrounded by his 12 disciples and his closest loved ones. There were a few that, that observed from a distance, but most of them were too afraid. Right? They, they, weren't, they weren't all there in the open and in the public. They were there in hiding someplace else. But Jesus returned with grace for those very same people who had abandoned him. And here's the thing. Humility and service to others is the primary way that we as believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. Without those things, it can't be done. It can't be done. Without humility and service to others, it can't be done. We cannot imitate Christ to his fullest. We can't fulfill his mission to its fullness. And you could see this message. You could see in Jesus' words, you could try to say, and it would be natural, I think, to say that he's condemning or he's rebuking greatness. But that's really not what's happening. He's redefining what greatness is. Jesus is redefining the terms greatness. I love what John Piper has to say on this topic. He said this, Instead of destroying the whole distorted thing, he describes a pathway on which the distorted and ugly pursuit of greatness will be radically transformed into something beautiful. The desire to be great is not the problem. We're created in God's image. God's fingerprints, the evidence of God's work is present in our lives everywhere you look. There is greatness within us because it was created by somebody great. There is an inherent value within us. And if that isn't enough, Jesus Christ came to die for us. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, came to die for each and every single one of us. 
And if that doesn't say that they, that Jesus saw something good in us, that God saw that he had created something good that needed to be redeemed, I don't know what else says it better. Jesus came to die for us. The desire to be great is not the problem. The problem is failing to frame greatness in God's terms. Humility and service. The problem is failing to frame greatness in God's terms. And Piper makes two more great points I wanted to share this morning about our longing for greatness and how it's been corrupted by sin. The first one is this. It's been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be known as great. When you think about greatness, often that's what it is. It's a striving to be known as great. And the problem with that is it supersedes the first part of the great commandment. Right? No longer is it love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. It's love yourself with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, right? Because in order to be known as great, we have to love ourselves more than the people around us. We've got to be willing to step on people. We've got to be willing to put ourselves out there and above others. It becomes the desire of our life. The second problem is that it's been corrupted into a longing not to be great, but to be greater than someone else. And the problem with that is it supersedes the second part of the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of seeing the people around us as the people that God created them to be, we see them as less than us. We see them as somebody who we need to be better than. We see them. That's the problem with sin. It comes in and it corrupts everything. Even if it's something that starts in the greatest of intentions, sin comes in and corrupts everything. Greatness is not the problem. We're all created for greatness. We're all created with significance. We're all created to do good works. God created every single one of us unique for a specific purpose. Greatness is not the problem because we're all created for greatness and significance in the kingdom on kingdom terms. So where does the rubber meet the road, right? All, right, all of this is great. All this is great. It's a, it's a teaching we can accept, I think. It's simple enough. But where does the, meet, the rubber meet the road? And it all starts with reframing greatness and intentionally practicing humility and service. So here's the first thing, and I think this is a big one. It starts at home. Right? Start at home. Here's the thing. We want to put on a great face when we go out into the world. We want to be our best selves because we want people to see our best selves, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, when we come back, sometimes at the end of the day, we've used up every bit of greatness, every bit of good we feel like we could, and we've got nothing left for our families, and they get the leftovers. We've worked so hard all day being the best we could or putting on a face maybe that doesn't really exist in reality. And we get home, our family gets the leftovers, and they see the worst possible in us. And that's part of the nature of being family, right? You spend a lot of time together. You're going to see each other at your best and your worst. But we need to be intentional to serve and love our family to the best of our ability. We take liberties with our families that we wouldn't with others because we sometimes take their love for granted. 
we think, they'll, they'll cut me some slack on this. They know I've been stressed. They know I'm, I'm dealing with this or that. And we make ourselves some excuses. How can we better serve our families? How can we better love our families? It starts at home. Here's the thing. If it starts at home and we can take care and love our families, that's going to carry out into the world around us. When people see a strong, healthy family, that's something people want to follow. That's something people want to emulate. And when that becomes part of our nature, it becomes part of our kids' nature, and then that goes beyond us into the world around us. That's so, so important. Second thing is this. Practice self-denial. Practice self-denial. Fasting, solitude, silence. These are some practical things that you can practice. It's almost like physical training. When you play a sport, you prepare for it. When I played soccer, we ran and 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 we ran. (laughs) It just never ended. There was lots of running because you need to be conditioned to run back and forth for 90 minutes nonstop. There's physical training. When we played baseball, we did a lot of arm strength so that we could throw and, and bat and core strength so that you could twist and pull the bat through. There's a lot of training involved. And the thing is, we can train ourselves spiritually just like we can physically. Fasting, solitude, and silence are a practice of denying ourselves for a period in time to train ourselves, to create time for God, to create time to be in silence, to to be able to listen, to hear what he's saying to us. And in that act of denying ourselves, it prepares us, especially over time, to do that very same thing for others. It becomes second nature as we realize that in the simple things like eating, I can say, eh, I can skip a meal for God, (laughs) right? You know, maybe your doctor would advise you against that, and I would say don't in that case. But if it's something that you can do, try, try the practice of fasting or solitude or silence. And the third one, serve children. Serve children. Right? That's, not the, that's not the big picture of this message, but it is a subtext that I think is important. Serve children. As I was reading and planning a little bit for, I guess technically last week, <laughs> there were some stats that came up that were quite sobering, and these are all American stats, right? These are just for, for the people around us. There's nearly one million reported abortions per year, right? That's reported abortions. Those aren't the ones that kind of go under the radar that are done in ways that are maybe not conventional or legal. More than likely, those numbers are over a million. Over a million abortions per year. 17% of children live in poverty, right? Poverty is defined as somebody who makes less than $20,000, so as soon as you add a child to that statistic, you're under that level. 17% of children are under poverty, right? And there's many who are right at that line or just above it. And when you look around at the prices of the things right now, $20,000 doesn't go a long way. Five million kids are food insecure, meaning they don't necessarily know where their next meal is coming from. We were packing or, or delivering food for a backpack program this week. 
And on Monday when we dropped off food, we got, you know, the question, couldn't we go back and pick up more? Because we anticipated maybe our numbers would be 350 to 400, because that's what they were last year. And before all the schools had even turned in all of the numbers, we were already over 530 packs that we needed this year. And that's just in the Cadillac area public schools. Well, area. There's a few other schools included. Mesick, Manton. Thanks. That's a lot of kids. One in nine girls and one in 20 boys have experienced sexual abuse. That's just sexual abuse or, or assault, right? We're not even talking about physical, mental, or verbal abuse. That's a lot. 5% of pregnancies are affected by drugs or alcohol. And in a 1992 stat, this one's an old one, 89% of teachers said that abuse or neglect was a problem in their education. That number has not gone down. There's no way. That number continues to go up more and more. It is unlikely that any classrooms are affected by kids who are having a difficult time learning, who are bringing their, the world hurts into the classroom. And all that to say that kids are not as likely to th- thrive in America as we'd like to think they are. America is a great country, don't get me wrong. There's no place I'd rather live. But there's a lot of work to be done, especially for our children. There's a lot that we can do. So how do we do that? So I tried to think of ways to get involved. I had three different places, right? Locally is one. So locally through Kids Hope, right? With Franklin School, we provide some mentors. That program needs to continue to grow because there are more and more and more kids who need mentors. So if you're interested in that, talk to us in the office or Casey Roller about what that looks like. Become a part of Kids Hope. Life Resources. We can get involved with Life Resources to help try to bring that abortion number down to support women in our community who are maybe experiencing a pregnancy that they didn't ever plan on and have no idea what to do next. The Cadillac Area Backpack Program. Right, there are, the numbers are going to continue to go up. When you look at our economy and what's happening, those numbers are going to continue to go up. That means we need more donations. We need more people to serve. We need more people to get involved. And we can send those, those presents. No? Oh, man. After, we, after I'm done preaching, we're going to watch it. You maybe saw it in the comments already, but we're going to watch it here when we're done preaching. Okay? Operation Christmas Child is an opportunity for us to send gifts overseas so that kids who may not feel loved, who may not know the love of Christ, who may not get any kind of present otherwise, so that they have that opportunity come Christmas to open a gift to experience the love of Christ. Haiti Clean Water. This is a little bit more broad than just kids, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of kids in Haiti who need clean water, and we can help provide that. And then right here in our very own church, right through the nursery, FBC Kids. You know, FBC Kids has 40 to 60 kids every week. That's a lot of kids. And as our church continues to grow, those numbers continue to go up, and that means our volunteer base needs to continue to grow. So if you're interested in serving in the nursery, or FBC Kids, or Awana, we can always use more volunteers. And here's the thing. It's not just about putting a warm body in a ministry so that kids can run around and have fun. It's an opportunity for us to love, 
It's an opportunity for us to disciple. It's an opportunity to, for us to share the message of Jesus Christ with these kids and hope that they leave transformed. Right? That's what this kids' ministry stuff is about. Right? We, just, we don't want to just fill it with volunteers so that we have the ministry. We want to have the ministry so that lives are changed. This is what I'll leave you with this morning. Greatness in the kingdom of God is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God who loves. For a God who, who was able, willing, and excited about sending his son because you knew it meant redemption for the world. I can't imagine how difficult that would be as a parent. I can't imagine sending my son to die for the world, and you did anyways. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that by placing our faith in you that we can have eternal salvation with you as servants, that we would be able to set ourselves aside for the greater good of those around us, but not just for the good, but so that people would come to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, grant us boldness, grant us grace, and grant us faith in the, world of a, uh, in the face of a world that's difficult at times to live in. People who are at times difficult to love, give us the words to speak and the heart. Break our hearts for those people, God, to see them as your unique creation in need of a Savior. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.